Hi, my name is Kibali Morethi and I would like to welcome you to the second season of Ari Diaries. Ari Diaries is an audio profiles podcast curated by Herman Ogula and I. Picking up from our first season, this series will spotlight more exemplary women who embody the Ari spirit of initiative, spirit and drive in everything they do as well as what they lend their voices to. The thematic focus will be breaking biases as well as how to achieve gender equality today for sustainable tomorrow. Hi everybody, my name is Kibali Murethi. Welcome to another episode of Ari Diaries and our guest today is Aya and I will let you introduce yourself the way that you like to be introduced. Uh, yeah, so my name is Aya JP Carrillo. Yeah. And how do I introduce myself? Well, nowadays I like, I like introducing myself with absolutes. Mm-hmm. So I'm a human being. Yeah. And because that's an absolute. Uh, what else? And also like intro- uh, describing myself with the things I'm passionate about. Well, not the things that describe the human being. So um, I exist as a transgender woman. Mm-hmm. And what else is got to that human being? I love as a lesbian and I fight as a feminist. Okay. <laughs> So let's let's unpack your introduction a little bit. So mm-hmm. you you said you identify as a like you introduce yourself in absolutes, which is a very interesting <laughs> way of introducing yourself. Mm-hmm. But you are so you said you're a trans woman. You are you love as a lesbian and you are a feminist, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Um. So do you want to get into a bit of your background or like in terms of just a little bit about like where were you born? What's the story of your life? How did you get to where you are now? <laughs> Shit, that seems like a lot of uh, lifetimes in one. <laughs> Again, I feel like I've lived like a bunch many of lifetimes. Lives. Yeah, yeah. In, that's in that's that's life. that's a good way to describe, <laughs> you know, because people talk about past lives, but mm. people never say like I've lived many lifetimes in one. So that's a very interesting thing yeah. to say. Yeah. Yeah. So that might that's um, that's one aspect I've noticed about my life. So like. Um, where do you start? Well, childhood, pretty normal. I mean, my name sometimes makes people think that I'm not from like Kenya, mm, mm. which is a fun thing. Like I'm, I, I get it. That's a good thing because then people can't box you. Yes. Yeah. Cab drivers tell me all sorts of politics about Kenya. They just listen as the foreigner woman in the back. Oh, really? <laughs> it's always hilarious. Yeah. But the thing is, yeah, I, I grew up in Meru. Okay. For most of my life. Yeah. I think... Um, all the way to high school, mm. and then I came to Nairobi in. Wow, it's been long. Two thousand or two thousand and two. Mm-hmm. It's almost twenty years now. So, yeah, I, I think sometimes I, I say I'm a Nairobian because, yeah. yeah, that most of my adult life has yeah. been like in this city. Yeah, and yeah, so like I like saying I'm a Nairobian, but I grew up in Meru. Uh, which I, I don't know it is now, but it was a small town mm. and actually beautiful. <laughs> yeah, like I think all the pictures we've seen of Meru is it's a beautiful place. Okay, mm. um, is there anything about your childhood that that you consider memorable? Oh well, a, a lot of it was interesting. I mean, uh, I, I went to Consolata. Okay. I don't know, in today's times people call it bougie, but for me it was just in a in a regular 
school, ran by nuns. And I, I think the one thing that was, that was interesting about, about being in that particular school was just this whole idea of, I don't know if the other kids also caught the same thing, but for me, there was a lot about trying to live life for something bigger. Mm. And at the time, it was <laughs> at the time it was mostly something big along, you know, church lines. So yeah. like, you know, kingdom things and uh, bringing Evan into work. Like, there's this saying. I think if you if you do something good, do it well and do it quietly. Mm-hmm. So it was a whole kind of philosophy of the the nuns yeah. and their founder. And I don't know. I, I took in a lot of that, and I think because pretty religious for a huge part of my life. Okay. Uh, possibly until uh, that, my 30s. Okay. Probably 31, 32, yeah. 34-ish. So that I got from my childhood. Uh, I think whatever survived post-religion is mm. just, yeah, the fact that I still want to live for things that are slightly, that give me purpose, that yeah. make uh, some meaningful life. And yeah. That has kind of remained a constant, like even in like looking for career and pursuing jobs. Yes. Interesting. Okay. Um, anything about high school that you consider memorable? Right. <laughs> uh, high school. Uh, no, I, I guess a lot of my influence was from primary school. Mm. So high school was more of trying to keep that a constant. Yeah. Uh, there's some things I remember now, like in retrospect about, you know, uh, about gender and stuff. Mm-hmm. And now like they make sense in retrospect. Yeah. The small things like the fact that we'll wake up at 4 a.m. and mm-hmm. take a shower. And I would always say I'm doing it because I want to go to class yeah. to study. Yeah. Oh, but I... Uh, this many years later, I realized I was doing it because I was scared of taking a shower in like open bathrooms with the guys. Mm. <laughs> so, and it was so subconscious, and I never thought of it until like you until you inter- interrogated it later. That was that was it wasn't because I wanted to go to class because I just didn't want to be in the sh- well. The showers are like open cubicles, you know. Mm-hmm. So there's the shower, and then there's the box. So if you're walking along the corridor, you can just see people's asses and they're taking the shower mm. and all that. And yeah, I think that used to terrify me. So I'd wake up early, 4 a.m. shower, 5 a.m. I'm in class. Yeah. I think people used to get in for preps at, was it six? And then go like have breakfast at seven. But yeah, a lot of high school was kind of a blur also because, um, so I had like a, my childhood was two parts. There was one part which was like really privileged, you know, like we used to go to school, being taken, what, sure, not chauffeured because my dad would do it. Yeah. But yeah, once in a while, we'd have a driver yeah, take yeah. us to school and then back home. And then I think my dad and my mom split up at some point, I think class three. And then at some point, my dad kicked us all out. So then high school were like extremely poor. Yeah. <laughs> so we struggled for everything. Like my mom struggled to get her school fees and food. And so there was also an aspect and she kept instilling this whole thing of, you know, you need to pray hard and work hard. And then the, the price that was proposed for that was to get back to almost a similar life like what we had in early childhood. Mm. And so, yeah, for 
big part of my school was like really focused on you know let's hit the grades let's uh which was it was it was it, it shaped my high school yeah because those those always like getting grades was always part of my reasoning like i need to get the grades because i need a bursary and and all, all of that, that yeah <laughs> interesting okay and even in high school like what did you what was your dream for yourself like i don't know how else to phrase it. like what was your dream for yourself I was interesting. I, I think I was very compliant then. Mm-hmm. So I always said what I thought the adults wanted to hear. Mm-hmm. So for a long time when I was a kid, I'd say, oh, yeah, I want to be a pilot. Because that was you know, one of adult approved yeah. career choices. Teachers, doctors, yeah. something, something, <laughs> yeah. And then around Form 2, we had an actual pilot come to school and tell us what was needed. I, I think things are way much better now. Because at the time, it was one of those unattainable careers. And it was like, either you join the Air Force or your parent can shell out like one or three million for you to go to school. And, you know, I just wrote it off. Then I was like, okay, clearly not for me. And besides, he said, you need to have good eyesight and I'm short-sighted. So never going to happen. <laughs> so that's how I wrote off flying. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, my dad used to be an accountant. And... My mom always kind of used to nudge, us, nudge me, especially along those ways. And she'd be like, oh, you, you're really good at math and like mental calculations. I still am. Yeah. Like I remember people's numbers of heads. Yeah. And if if the sums, one time it was so bad, like if I stood behind someone in the Mpesa shop and the person at the counter showed you like the phone like this and I was looking at it. You would be I'd able to remember your numbers, how much you sent then I'd have to try to force it. That's a very <laughs> like, photographic memory. <laughs> for numbers, not for not for a lot of things. Yeah. And I tried to force it out of, you know, out of my mind. And so, yeah, my mom always said, you know, uh, and she had this whole belief that if we made it to campus, you know, life would be good. She's like, oh, you know, your dad was like really good at this accounting thing. By the time he finished Nairobi University, everyone was looking for him, you know, Moroni Sugar, mm. the big companies then. And so when I got from Trend, I had to choose subjects, already I've written offline. Yeah. Uh, and so I, one thing about like studying a lot, you kind of, and, and about our system, which is a bit shitty. If you're good at keeping things in, in your mind, you pass in a lot of things. So it's passing in agriculture, commerce, at work. And so when I had to choose, I was like, okay, what what do I really want? Because I didn't want anything like really, like for myself. Mm. And so I actually got pushed into an accounting class. I didn't choose it. They didn't have quorum and they're like, okay, you, 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 you're in this class. Yeah. And so I did accounting in high school. And when I finished, some, I think my last two years of high school, I really struggled with grades. Mm. And maybe... Part of that was because of, you know, it wasn't coming from inside. Yeah. It was like external pressure. You know, yeah, yeah. I need to get the grades so that life becomes good. Better. Yeah, yeah. there's nothing like I'm motivated to study this. Yeah. And so really like getting to the, you know, the finishing line, KCSE, everything was like, you know, like total effort. Like staying up late at night, 1 a.m., getting up early in the morning. And I 
think I got a B minus at the time, mm-hmm. which couldn't get into campus. Yeah. In 1999. Yeah. Which it was an interesting year. Everyone thought the world was gonna end. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, here we are. <laughs> yeah, here we are. <laughs> and Manchester United won the treble. That one I remember. <laughs> <laughs> you have a photographic memory. Uh-huh. I remember that because all like people in my class used to sneak out to go watch the game. Mm. And I never understood the hype. Like I, I think I was also very I still am like a lot of like very socially disconnected. Like there could be something trending and happening and everyone is into it. And I'm like, okay. What's going on? Yeah. yeah. So I catch things like way later on. Yeah. So that year the buzz was Manchester United. And my friends would sneak out to go watch the game. And they had, like, stickers of, you know, Beckham and everyone on their, like, is it your books? So, 99 was an interesting year. Okay. And then, so you leave high school. Did you go to college or university, for example? Yeah, so I, what happened after school? So there was, there was that whole one year. Again, the plan was always to get into uni mm-hmm. through some government sponsorship. Yeah. And that didn't happen. And then at that time, I was like really religious. I think I was even thinking of joining the priesthood. <laughs> you, wow. Okay. <laughs> and then I, what happened? I signed up for CPA classes. Yeah. But like paid for the exams and everything. And then I was like, okay, I did accounting in school. Maybe I can actually act this thing. So I paid for the class, for not classes, for exams. And then, I, you know, I started doing self-studying and I think I worked in a construction job for like eight months mm. in, in Embu, mm-hmm. which was, it was nice because it was the first time away from home. Mm. And, and it was also interesting because first time I'm making money for myself. I remember the first month, it wasn't much money I'd saved up, like a thousand, two thousand shillings. But I remember taking it home to my mom and saying, you know, we got this money and I'm not sure what to do with it. What to do with it, yeah. <laughs> I should like go buy yourself shoes or something. <laughs> oh, wow. So, yeah, I, I did construction work, which was, yeah, it was, it was interesting. There's, there's a lot of, and, you know, you get to know people and stories and the, the people who are running the place kind of treated some of us differently because uh-huh. in the crew there's also like people who in university so either during strikes or like KU back in the day had like really long holidays and they'd come work for him so he did a post them in the clinic or with the crew and then he also had some of us who thought were on their way to university yeah and so we're like it's the main point of us being there was to learn like the value of work and uh, the guys were Japanese, so it was it was a very we got to learn like about the religion, which was also interesting. Yeah, and uh, then the old values and all that stuff. It was it was an interesting year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I only left because there was an outbreak of typhoid and malaria, and I got both, which was rare. I've never been sick since then. Yeah, like it's twenty years. I've never had like anything that. Yeah. That particular one was like so sick, mm. and the Japanese guy he passed on. I think last year he was a really good man. Yeah. So, and you will say, you know, so using my my name at the time, you know, I had poor Karibu na Fichamui. Mm. Used to speak broken Swahili, and mm. Japanese have an R L thing going on. Yeah. 
so <laughs> so when he says likwa karibu kuficha meli means like I was about to die <laughs> oh I was, <laughs> I was so confused yeah uh, yeah but it was so interesting uh, so that was i think 2000 and then now to towards in Nairobi okay and by then I was done I was not looking to join like campus uh, religion or what but I was I was actually now hanging out in campus okay I was still doing my CPA where were you doing your CPA then uh so I did the first ones by myself yeah and I think I passed one and failed a bunch but yeah so I signed up for a class it was a center in KU mm-hmm Actually, my mom found it because she was like really intent on like getting us into getting college. you into education, continuing with education. Yeah. yeah. So she found this center and she was like, "Oh, this this center in KU. Maybe just go do your CPAs from there, and then if there's an opportunity to get into do a degree, then you could." So that's how I wound up in KU. And by then, I didn't want to do you know like religion and what. Yeah. We used to argue like a lot about it, but yeah, I I think. kind of left my system was still like pretty religious but not enough to join you know like pre-student stuff like that okay <laughs> so yeah KU began and then my relationship with KU lasted I was two two it lasted for 10 years because oh. I couldn't um the self-sponsored program started while I was still hanging around there mm-hmm. and so I signed up for it then all of a sudden I realized wait this thing requires money Mm. it's not like free it's not like doggo money it's yeah. like a lot of money and so i started taking jobs and uh you know Nairobi was always like exciting those those like you know you could actually hustle and grow or something mm. or i'll make money enough to pay fees and so i would take a year off as i missed off and so i kept calling off and then finally in 2008 i think elb started giving self sponsored students loans yeah So, you know, combined with savings, combined with help, uh, combined with some surpluses now from my kid sisters who are now in campus. Yeah. And then I could make like, you know, an year's fee. And so from 2008 to 2012, I was consistently in school. Yeah. Um, which was, it was a nice time. Uh, then I, I had grown the full-time thing. Mm-hmm. So now I had to like take part-time classes. Yeah. So I think I've done the whole spiel for KU. I've done, <laughs> I've been, like I've been there through three VCs. I was there when Ishwani was the VC. Wow. And then Standa, and yeah. then Mugenda. Yeah. And then that's when I, I left. But it, it was it was interesting just seeing the place change. I remember one time I went back, when I went back in two I was trying to get back like to a six to a eight and my sisters were then like first year second year and I went back and Mugenda transformed the place and I was like you know I'm lost like please come show me around because I need to find the offices yeah. and she she was she was actually very impressive because the KU had during Ishwani's time was a bush <laughs> like biggest If if people are familiar with KU, the biggest uh, building at the time was Science Complex, which is like two stories. Mm-hmm. It was the tallest. And then from there, it was bush, bush, bush. And then you could see the Nyayo uh, students' hostels, yeah. like way in the background. It used to be beautiful still. Like there's, if you walked past Nyayo's in the evening, the you could see there's a lot of grass in Kiwanza. And the grass had this red flowers. So I, I, I like going there mm. so it was only sunset in sunset in Kiwanza yeah and 
when you were in KU during this entire time, were you you were still doing accounting? No, no, no. So I I applied for BCom. Yes. Because again, it was closer to to accounting. Yeah. And so I that's that's what I did in KU. So yeah. I, I did. I have a BCom degree. I haven't graduated actually, but I did a BCom degree. But you finished. Yes. <laughs> okay. You just have not graduated. Yes. Okay. Which which is gonna make my story for KU like twenty years long. <laughs> okay, so it's already long at ten years. Yeah, and um, when you were studying, mm-hmm. I know initially you were being pushed in that direction, mm-hmm. but then at some point you chose to continue paying for classes, etc. Like what was what was the idea? Like you are do you you are going to do become and then what? Well, I it it was interesting at the time there was. There's still the idea of getting a better life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'd, it was more of like not letting something go to waste. I've done accounting. Some I'm actually good at it because I've passed some exams without going to sit in someone's class. Mm-hmm. Um, and then become seemed like the natural choice. So I got into that. And although there's, there's also a lot that was happening out here. So... This whole assault of trying to look for fees, I think I did so much. I, I, I've sold car freshness on Kenyatta Avenue. <laughs> I've sold oh. insurance. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, when, you know, all this whole BPO thing, the mm-hmm. one which finally made people start uh, dreaming about Konza. Mm. So in 2007, it was, a, it was a thing. It was a big thing. Yeah. And I just got fired from the insurance job. Um, my... Line manager came into the mood and she was like, you know, what are you for? You aren't even selling. I mean, and so you're fired. She <laughs> she thought about it later. And she was like, would you like to come back? I like, no. no <laughs> no. And so I wound up working in a call center. Yeah. And so then there was now this whole exposure to computers, which I also had gotten a little bit of it. Like, you know, the ones you'd sign up for a class like, mm. to learn how to use Windows. Yeah. <laughs> Just the fun. I mean, now in <laughs> retrospect, you think about it, and your kids in the state saying, "Oh, you know, the computer would work because that's Windows." You're like, "Jeez, like, mm. I figured these things out at twenty something, <laughs> and now you know them at five years old or like whatever." <sighs> so yeah, I, I got into call centers. Yeah, and call centers were good for my schooling because I'd work. Sometimes I'd work nights. Like I could balance out. I could do evening classes. And then at some point, what made me quit the first one? So my friend had a four-year-old child. Mm. She, so we became close and a few nights she didn't come to work. And I was like, oh, what's going on? She was like, oh, my child is sick. And mm. I was like, oh, I didn't know you have a child. And so um, we talk about this and, you know, there's this whole thing of, you know, we're showing up to work at midnight. We, we had like weird shifts because we were serving like people in another time zone. Mm. So it get into work, you know, midnight, 1 a.m. And then maybe to 10 a.m. And those people did the day shifts. But there was always this thought of, you know, the only thing that's keeping us is internet. Like if you had internet somewhere else, could you- actually make a thing out of this. Yeah. So again, it's really amusing for me like now when... You know, my my child and the age mates, everyone is like doing some online work. It was like, there was a time when this was... Was not a reality, it was yeah, not their reality. We're actually yeah. like thinking about it as something revolutionary. So me and my friends started 
I think the first company I attempted to start was Innovate. Mm-hmm. And so we called it kind of freelancers yeah. sourcing. <laughs> and the whole idea was just to free ourselves, you know, she'll go work from home, take care of our child and hold our flexible schedules. But then also things were changing like really, you know, like rapidly. So one minute, uh, this whole dream of working from home is seeming like, you know, something... What is it? Is it groundbreaking? Mm. Like breakthrough something? Yeah. Then all of a sudden, everyone has internet at home. Mm-hmm. Zuko, I think, was the thing at that time. Um, and people were slowly starting to like work independently. So at that time, there was, I think, what's called Upwork now. Mm. I don't remember the name they had at the time. A bunch of companies actually combined before it became Upwork. Mm. But after a while, we're like, okay, it doesn't make sense anymore. We made some money off the company. Like, yeah. Because um, we had skills. I, I think there's like countable people could do like, you know, like closed captioning. Mm-hmm. And I could do that. So it was on the profile and sometimes someone would just call and be like, oh, I saw you do closed captioning in Kenya. Mm-hmm. I'd be like, yeah. So some of them were either shooting something here and that footage that was in Swahili and so I made some money off that. I never spent it well. I, I don't think I've ever mastered that in my <laughs> life even now. Like I get a lot of cash, but get it and spend it. So it's it's a skill I'm trying to learn in old age. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So call centers. And I think all these things were like kind of pushing me in a certain trajectory in life. Mm-hmm. So call centers exposed me to computers yeah. and then... Finally, I think in 2011, that's the first time I had home internet. Mm. And so I locked up myself in the room. Yeah. I, I used to live with my sister then. And she thought I was just in my room listening to music. But I was actually working. Yeah. And we'd have arguments about it. But then I'd be like, okay, okay, I'm going to cook. I'll clean. Mm-hmm. I finish that and go back. But then also that that was the year I figured out that I was transgender because mm-hmm. that had been like... You know, Around from, 2011. Yeah. yeah. So it had been like for 10 years I knew there was something different. Yeah. You know, from the time I was working in the construction space and all that, but I didn't, I couldn't put a finger to it. Even or, the language, of course. Yeah, I didn't have the words. Also, yeah. in church, so I thought um, I have some sort of perversion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so in 2011, when I got the internet, that was one of the first things. You started looking up. Yeah. Yeah. And the point of searching was what's wrong with me. Mm. And I'd put in like what I feel are the characteristics that describe what is wrong with me. Mm -hmm. And then I stumbled on this. uh, Her name's Liati. She's a Brazilian transgender model. Mm -hmm. And I found online, I was like, wait, this is the thing. Like there's actually other people in the world. Just like this. Yeah. Yeah. But. I couldn't find anyone in Kenya. So I thought, okay. So I know these people in the world. I signed up for online forums. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, okay, maybe I'll just be reading about these online forums and figure out how to, at the time the idea was to fix myself. Mm-hmm. Although there was, it, it was two things. There was one, the excitement of figuring out what it is. I, I think I'm still a fixer in many ways. Mm-hmm. So there was the excitement of finding, oh, this is, this is what's been, Happening. Yeah. Yeah. And then, but then there was also now being terrified and being saying, oh shit, I'm, I'm all alone. And how do I fix this? How do I, you know, 
get back to normal societal life, you know, get married mm. <laughs> and stuff like that. And it was it was it was an interesting time. So there was all that happening. And I think 2012 I got into my first kind of relationship with someone I really loved. Mm-hmm. And that was so there's all this so self-discovery, then you love someone and then you're almost finishing school. It was like everything at once. At once. Almost, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And in my last year, some of my high school mates got me a job like in the bank. Mm-hmm. So 2012, 2013, I was working with it was it was kind of a pre-contract agency position. Yeah. So if you perform well, it was a collections job, mm-hmm. supposed to collect debts. If you perform well, then you do the aptitude test with the UK head office, and then now you get into entry level. Yeah. Which at the time I think entry level was paying like 50k, 55k, and that's one like on half pay, 25k. Yeah. For me, it was okay, I'm in school, this is happening. So all this time I had shelved my my company thing. Mm. Like, okay, these other things are happening. So yeah. I was juggling a lot. Yeah. And none of it seemed like very directed. It was more of try this, try that. In school, I realized I was like really good at. So I didn't do, <laughs> I didn't, I wound up not doing accounting or finance, <laughs> the things my mom would have hoped me to do. Yeah. And I did management science. I think that was the first thing I did for me. Like, oh, this thing seems interesting. So I picked management science and uh, KU's management sounds as like statistics. There's a lot of math. Uh, and then, but yeah, it has IT things. Yeah. So management of information systems, uh, decision support systems, and and then it has some project management. Mm. So it's kind of finding myself like a perfect mix yeah. of stuff I enjoyed. Like, I know like some of the classwork, the projects we did then, like I'll do a whole thing by myself, mm. even if it was group work, because I was interested in yeah. the stuff. And so, yeah, I worked for the bank for one year. And, but again, I was terrified because it is someone I love and the standard way, if you love someone, you get married. Yeah. It was like, there's no way 25K is going to act this. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, 25K. Unless it was dollars. You're about to graduate. Yeah. And, so like, okay, it's not going to work. So, and then I was already, and she, I think she was the first person I told I'm transgender. Mm. And then between us, we started figuring out, we're like, okay, like we, we need to navigate this because it's not going to be accepted by anyone. Mm. And so how she found out was I had trousers that were like meant for women. Mm-hmm. And she was like, why do you have such clothes? I'm like, what do you mean? And she's like the like the pants you're wearing. I'm like, no, these these are mine. And she's like, no, JP, I have an exact pair. Mm. I'm like, I'm sorry. <laughs> so then I had to tell her, I was like, this is what I've been struggling with. And at the time I thought it was a struggle. I, di- I didn't think it was a way of being. Yeah. So I, that's how I described it. And since she was nice, but I think we're still friends. She was is that really, you know, like some human being? Mm-hmm. Like, okay, well, let's navigate this one. You can't buy this from the shop mm-hmm. because people will target you. And she was like, I saw you make something for yourself, like clothes. So I'd, I'd actually started making clothes for yep. myself. Your own clothes, yeah. And she was like, maybe you can make more of those. So that if anyone says anything, at least they're your own pieces. Their own designs, yeah. So for, I think, five years, even after we broke up, 
I think called late 2019 from mm. 2012 I I will make my own clothes. Mm. And initially it was kind of something can slide in into what society expects. Yeah. So a bit of androgyny. But then after we broke up and that was 2015 2016 and at the time I was like you know let me try to stop fixing this and really give give it a chance. Mm-hmm. Uh, it turned out to actually giving myself a chance. Yeah. So yeah. After that I'll make clothes based on my values. So if the prevailing value for me that year was freedom and identity, I'd make some really free flowing clothes yeah. and yeah, it was a fun thing. I I think I haven't made anything since 2019, but probably something I'll still do. Yeah. 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 Did you Wow, you've touched on so many things. I don't even know what to ask in particular. <laughs> so I'll just ask this. Did you was fashion something that you did you just stumble upon fashion or was it something that you had like the whole stitching sewing it is like is that something that you studied no it was I, i think so right now if even you ask me my profession or my speciality I would, I would say I'm a you know is experience researcher and mm. designer but this whole aspect of designing things I kind of stumbled on it yeah So when I quit from the bank, I remember my friend asking me, so what are you going to do? I was like, I don't know, like, I'll just go figure it out. And what happened? So that week, there was, there was, there was a thing at Stradmo, uh, Tech for Africa, and just popped into my email. I was like, okay, since I'm out of employment, I might as well go for this thing and mm. see. So I went for that Tech for Africa conference. And I had all these ideas of like, wait, you know, like some of the things I've been thinking to fix. I think that was the same year I had missing marks in school. And for me, the whole thing about problems is how do I fix them? Yeah. So it was always that mindset. And so I went for this thing and I was like, okay, there's such a thing as apps. This is how they work. So I'd, at night I'd be doing my transcription side gigs, but I'd also be coming up with ideas for things. And then I also started making greeting cards. Mm-hmm. So again, like leaning a lot towards design, but yeah. not like really embracing it and saying, you know, like I'm a designer or whatever. And most of the people are buying the cards from me were the people I used to work with. The yeah. So they'd be like, oh, I need quit to go make cards. So that call, call you yes. too. Mm-hmm. And so That's I made awesome. stuff, yeah. uh, make like eulogies. But mostly the particular cards I used to make were... The, like speciality card so it comes sit with you tell me about this person you want to make a card yeah and very tailor-made yes yeah but those never had a lot of money because it's one person in a blue moon <laughs> yeah it's a birthday or something or a special friend but those are the ones i started out making and then i do these others for like for you know like to line the pocket or to pay bills mm. i wasn't actually paying bills i was living off my sister yeah <laughs> Uh, yeah, she she almost kind of took care of all of us. Mm. So yeah, firstborns have like sometimes you know I feel guilty. I'm like okay, maybe she'll have lived a more interesting life if weren't around. But mm. and such is life. Such is life. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So that's that I think was my entry into design. Mm. And I remember the first time I fig- I created, you know, like UI flows. I didn't even know what they were. Mm-hmm. I was just on Illustrator. And taking screenshots of things, and then I found the director 
director of Airtel Money, I found his number on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Like he just started it. I was like, okay. So I called him. I was like, you know, I've been looking at this thing and I think it's possible for people to combine, um, you know, multiple banks in, and ways of moving money in one application. Like that sounds interesting. Come see me. Mm-hmm. So we set up an appointment and then on the day of the appointment, he forgot, like we didn't do calendars, we didn't do nothing. So I showed up and then... This person doesn't remember. Yeah. So I called and he was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'll connect you with my assistant. Mm. Her name's Matilda and she will help you. And so Matilda called me one day and I'd just done a whole night of transcription. Mm. I was like dozing and sleeping. And I see a call and I just pick up. And she's like, are you the person who came? You know, to, to the office, to see, yeah. So I'm still groggy and she's telling me... So she... She almost bombarded me. She was like, no one's going to put the, uh, you know, debit card details on an app. No one's going to, it's unsafe, it's what. And me, I'm sleepy and all that. And mm. I was like, okay, if it's not going to work, it's okay. It was just a good idea. And years later, I just used to laugh at them. I'm like, really? Like, everyone's putting that, like every app you buy. Now, yeah. You're putting all those numbers. She said, no one will trust. Yeah. You know, an app to put the numbers on. And so I pitched the same idea, I think, to Pesa Point mm. uh, and a bunch of other people. And then that's how I found myself in the tech community because the next event that happened used to be somewhere up in Gong Road, mm-hmm. Bishop Magua. Yeah. Again, buy a tell money and I showed up for that and I was like, wait, like there's actually people trying to make things. So, but then I was done with KU. Mm. Like I had missing marks for like my whole last semester. Yeah is a weird semester and so I was like okay we'll come sort this and I kept and then I really got into like the tech space and uh, one of the ideas was you know maybe the universities can build a system to fix missing marks mm. <laughs> it's yes please if it's not been done <laughs> yeah I designed that mm. and my thinking at the time KU had really grown I think that the largest population of students, mm. even compared to UN, like if I can solve it for, so ideally the way it works, you solve it for a small group yeah, and then you can expand. So, but for me, I went the opposite. I was like, if I can solve it for the big fish, mm. then I can just go back to everyone else yeah. and fix it. And we had, those a competition and we pitched. It was a three month thing. So you incubated, you're learning. We learned a lot of things. Uh, including coding, which I can't code now to save my life because mm-hmm. I had friends who in the class who are better than me who had, who had JK degrees in tech. Mm. And so I, I gave them this idea and they're like, okay, Let's it do sounds it. viable. So we did it. We started out as a group of six, but the time we got to pitch day three months later, we're just two of us. Mm-hmm. Me and a colleague, she's now like a founder of a design company. Mm. Yeah, she's totally impressive. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, we pitched and we won first prize. I think it was supposed to be half a million shillings. And I was like, okay, you know, my life is taking shape. I moved from the bank earning 25K and there's people willing to give me half a million shillings. Yeah, so, to do what, you, to, to launch all these ideas, something. yeah. And then eventually I didn't get the half a million. Just mm. <laughs> such a weird story. Um, so I, the, those there was the funding group, and then there's the people who organized the competition. Mm-hmm. So the funding group, the guys who are funding this whole thing, actually came for the pitch, and they, you know, they witnessed everything, and they're like, okay, 
this is the team that we are awarding. But then when they left, um, the organizers will keep asking questions. They'll be like, okay, like, you know, yeah, you won the competition, but if we give you this money, we're not sure. What you will do that with it. the application is gonna take off. Mm. Like you're targeting public universities. Like I've talked to them, which was true. I talked to the guys at KU, and was sort of sort of on a familiarity basis because I'd done some internship there, and everyone was like, "Oh, you technology," mm. <laughs> and but it was it was very two sided. And the one hand, they'd like welcome me, and I'd hang around, and we talk. But none was taking like decisive action. Mm. And so this went on for months. And finally I asked one person, I was like, wait, like what's going on? I feel like you've been taken around in circles. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, you know, the truth is KU paid for a system last year, you know, 45 million shillings, and it's not working. It crashes every beginning of semester. Mm. Uh this thing you've designed looks good. And it actually might work better than the other system, but no one wants to go to the VC and say, you know, we messed up last year. We paid mm. 45 million shillings for nothing. And then it was like, the worst part is you're giving it to us for free. Yeah. I was, I'm going to charge them. So I was like, but I have a grant or will I charge you for mm. an app and to even help me graduate, you know? Mm. And be like, no one wants to be the person. Mugendi used to be like really strict. And it was like, no one's going to face the VC with this. Like, yes, you are our person, you act with us, but no one wants that job on the line. Mm. Then the other thing at the time, I, I don't know if it's the case, I think things have changed by now. But at the time, staff would get like, um, is it like a per diem to mm. sit on a graduation score registration mm. and help mm. people sign mm. like physical forms. And so, yeah, that was my first introduction to users. Okay. It was like I was so focused on fixing this thing for the students. I didn't think, you know, the staff also users and like everyone had different needs. And like this thing I was offering should have met like all the needs. Mm. And I had a mentor at the time. She was doing a doctorate. Yeah. And every time I did a stumbling block, I'd go back to her. And so I kept giving updates and she was like, you know, instead of me answering your questions every time, you run into something, why don't you come? I love her. I'm offering a course for three months. Mm. I can teach you and your co-founder these things. And then you can be, you know, can be practitioners. Yeah. And by the time she was doing this, the guys were supposed to give me money and withheld it. Mm-hmm. It was competition money. I mean, rightfully, they should have given it to me. Yeah. Uh, but they used it. They gave it to the startup that was, you know, what they mentioned, they didn't even give it to the runners-up. Mm. So they took uh, our money, which was first price, and the money for the person was second price, and loaned it to the third runners-up. Mm-hmm. So loan, which means they had to pay back. Yeah. And when they couldn't pay, they took shares in their company, mm-hmm. which was sad. Uh, the founder always regrets it, but his company really grew and, like, Anytime we had, you know, Kenya hype about startups, mm. it was always in the mentions, it was the person for the panels. Uh, but for me and my co-founder, now we got into this whole, you know, UX research and design. And then finally, uh, our mentor was like, you know, I have this uh, grant yeah. and there's a job that's coming through. Since I've trained you for three months, would you like to work with me? 
and you know I'll give you like a fellowship stipend you'll be on 50k a month like okay so 50k a month 25k from the bank then mm. 50k yeah it's a like step upwards <laughs> so we took the jobs and that i think changed the trajectory that would be now my second life yeah so that just took me all ways into like this whole startup space mm. and this experience research and that was my life for the next 2014 i think till 2018 mm. four years about four years yeah okay so yeah okay and what are you let's get into a, a bit of what what are you doing now now oh, so now is mostly post 2018 <laughs> and so what happened um so we got the fellowship job worked for a bit and then i kept like moving around in that space mm-hmm. I, was, i think community manager at one time uh for that tech community yeah uh, at some point i won some award very interesting time congratulations uh, <laughs> yeah. well nadist feels so far removed i mean it has names of someone i remotely remember was me mm. it was also me yeah and so it's 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 all these mixed feelings i can't take it back to the people who gave it to me and be like okay you know this is me now please change, change the name. The, yeah 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 and so by 2016 it was actually a weird time so i actually got the award like 2016 sep and then 2016 october i don't have a job i don't have a card nothing mm-hmm. and so it was like at one point you are you have this award you are outstanding young person of cgwa yeah and you've traveled for the award <laughs> and then you come back to kenya and you have silch you have nothing mm. and so at the time now i have words for it like i went into depression mm-hmm. then i didn't know you didn't know what it was yeah, yeah. i just knew those four months i stayed in the house not paying rent not mm-hmm. doing nothing mm-hmm. and only figured out it was four months when my landlord called me and was like eh, you haven't paid rent for four months mm-hmm. yeah that's when that was like my wake-up call um but yeah afterwards i picked up i i think also the way life had kind of cultured me that whole idea of you know like you know just pull yourself by the bootstraps you mm-hmm. know, wake up at 4 a.m in high school yeah so in 2017 i kind of had the same mindset of like you know i can pull myself out of this which was a very destructive way of doing it mm-hmm. but yeah so i moved out of nairobi and to coast uh, and for four months which was a bit calming and I was in the tech community there yeah but wait where was I even going with this but yeah I, I mean so at this point yeah. I was now living authentically as myself mm-hmm. as a transgender person yeah and I remember meeting Audrey in 2016 mm-hmm. just before I lost my job and she was the only public person I'd seen on tv you know a trans woman I was like god oh, that is the Audrey mm. <laughs> and I remember we exchanged I think emails And then after that we talked on Google chat for a couple of years. So by this time I didn't know there's like an active community and like there was more people than Audrey. And finally in 2018 like I was pretty active on Facebook, mostly in the feminist circles and I'd talk about it. And someone invited me for a panel. And they're like, "Oh, would you like to come and talk?" I was like, "But I'm not an activist." Mm. They're like, "Oh, really? But I've been seeing your posts." Your posts, yeah. 
So I went back and looked at you know, my whole timeline for 2018. It was just activism stuff. Mm. It's like, okay, maybe, maybe this is the person I am. Yeah. So I went for that panel. And after that, there was more panels and I was being called to matches and stuff like that. Mm. And then 2019, I found the trans community and like we, there are so many of them. First, I was like really shocked. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we, we, but it was nice. I needed them at the time. I was, yeah. I was going through a spiral. It was really nice finding, you know, there's more people like me and they're actually living life. I was, I was very linear. I thought the only way to, you know, be authentically myself was to save up, you know, 1.6 million shillings, mm. go to Thailand, get surgery, and then I'd be me. Mm. <laughs> and that was proving difficult with everything, you know, in and out of jobs, yeah. and freelancing and what. And so I was like really losing hope. Mm-hmm. And then I find them and a lot of them are like, no, you know, there's, there's ways like you can get hormones and medication over the counter mm-hmm. because there are no doctors prescribing and that can help, you know, balance the whole conflict between your mind and, and the person your body is. And so that was a relief, like finding a community, finding people I could talk to and yeah. And I, after that, it was now all the way into activism. Mm. So <laughs> someone, a friend of mine, Recently, no, I meant actually, she she was laughing about it and saying like, once you get employment in the in this either an organization yeah. that specifically, you know, working for human rights or rights of the person you are, she was like, okay, that's when you become a professional queer or you are a gay man, you become <laughs> a professional gay. And I laughed about it. I was like. <laughs> It sounds so funny when you put it that way because, mm. you know, like you're prof- you're doing work for things that you are. Mm-hmm. Being queer, being transgender, it's something that and you getting are. paid for it. Yeah, but now you're working for it's it's such a contradiction because now you're working for you're working you're earning a living for for trying to validate something you already are. Mm-hmm. Like your existence alone should validate you in society. But, but now, now, you're, now you're actively working, like day in, day out. You're working to tell people, you know, my existence is valid. Mm. And yeah, she was calling it also, she was talking about that point in her life and saying that's when she was, became a professional gay or professional queer. It depends on the terms people use. Mm. And so I think for me that happened when COVID, possibly. 2020. Yeah. yeah. So between 2018 and 2020 was, you know, I was just an, I was an activist. Uh-huh. And a lot of people, even the community were like, okay, we see you and we see you in like panels and doing things. But we always thought you, you know, you're a lone ranger. You don't want to be in the community. Uh-huh. I was like, no, I, I didn't know you exist. Uh-huh. Like, that's why I've never been in this circles. And in 2020, COVID happened. Then I got a journalism job that involved reporting about um, rights of LGBTQ people. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because I did a bunch of stories, uh, mostly not for LGBT people in Kenya. I did I did one for Kenya, which was more of a personal story, kind of telling my own story and um, filling it up with, with uh, experiences of other people. It's about religion and being queer. But I did stories from Pakistan, Kuwait, 
uh, Yemen, which was interesting because the only thing we shared with all these countries is we had the same colonizer. <laughs> and that that was like, it was it like made all the difference. And it's such a weird <laughs> pattern when you realize it. And you're like, the countries that violate queer people the most in the world now were the countries colonized by the British. <clears throat> so if you're colonized mm-hmm. by the French, then your country doesn't have a law criminalizing people. Mm-hmm. So Rwanda doesn't, DRC doesn't. It doesn't mean society will treat that's, you like... It's very interesting. Yeah, so, I mean, society might treat you weirdly, but, there but there's no, no law, law saying, yeah. saying you're a criminal. But anyone who's colonized by the British has that law, and it was always in the same wordings, and some countries always took it to the extreme. I mean, in Africa, it's what, Nigeria, I think there's four countries that have the death sentence, all British colonies. Mm. And so those were some of the articles I wrote. So I did journalism work for six months. I was in limbo for a while. And then I'm doing comms for a while. Okay. Mostly, I think this past few has been, it's been a balance. It's been more of, you know, like if I could do activism and just do activism, that would be fine. But then you have to pay rent and you have children. And so then you have to work. Mm. So, and for me, it's been that Finding that of, balance, yeah. yeah. So you're working for a living and you also want to do activism. And even, even in activist organizations, you still find yourself either censoring yourself or the culture in the organization censoring you. Mm. So like, okay, I can't do this because I work for an organization. Yeah. So it's it's a very interesting dynamic. And yeah. So that has been my life for the past few. And talked about many of your lifetimes, <laughs> you know. Okay, let's um you identifying as a transgender person or woman, um a lesbian and also a feminist. What does what does because we we're trying to tie all these conversations into gender equality today for sustainable tomorrow. So let's just unpack that. What does gender equality mean to you? Huh. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting because I, well, I, I think from my perspective as a feminist, it was always dismantling this whole system of inequality. Mm-hmm that denies particular groups in society opportunity and choice. And opportunity could be like, you know, for livelihood and choice could be even all the way to choice about their bodies. Mm-hmm. Like, so dismantling, for me, dismantling these systems was like the core thing. And which is a bit of radical feminism because some people always say, oh, you know, want job equalities or want, you know, gender pay gap, and that's good. I support that, but I, I always feel like if we still have the oppressive systems that mm. created this in the first place, we'll go into some other oppression of sorts. Mm-hmm. We'll find another group to oppress because traditionally the systems that we have and the systems that we use were always structured in such a way that it felt like you couldn't live a normal human life if there wasn't someone that you're extracting from. Mm. And this, it's it's such a, I mean, people call it capitalism, but I think it's way more than that. Mm. It's a very extractive way of, of looking at the world. Yeah. And for me, I feel like equality, gender equality has to be based on 
on new systems mm-hmm. systems so people are, are not equal just because of their gender but they equal to each other because they're human because mm-hmm. then that was going to bring me to my next question which is about sustainability because when you're talking about sustainability does that then mean erasing what exists and building a fresh you know and you touched on that so that's what I was going to ask next mm-hmm. yeah I, i think so so one one of the startups i cons- cons- uh, consistently worked for even mm-hmm. when i got into activism was a climate change startup called mtech mm-hmm. I, i never did much for them to go a few hours every month sometimes those hours are good enough like to pay rent Mm. so yeah and so taking the climate change thing as an example mm-hmm. and so climate change on the one and sustainability on the other if we don't change our our economic system yeah. systems run then we, we're never going to fix climate change mm. i mean we can st- we can talk about you know carbon credits which allow some people to keep polluting a little bit mm-hmm and paying off like the ones who are doing something to sec- you know sequestrate Sequ- carbon yeah. and but the point is unless people sit back and be like no the rate we are taking from the world there's no more world that's going to be left mm. but it's, it's a part of the world that's so i think the world the world will be selfish mm-hmm. you know you tell someone you know if we don't fix this by 2030 and the person goes like oh you know 20 that I'll be like 50 60 so the world I'm, I sh- I can live my best life mm, now now yeah but the world can burn after I'm gone yeah. and so there's this such a uh, it's a sad mentality and sometimes it's visible in 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 a lot of actions other times it's camouflaged so like there's a huge move now like to take human beings into space mm. and it looks progressive like from the from on surface yeah. yeah on surface of it looks like very progressive like oh, we're going to space we're going to you know create new worlds but if you explore the motives a yeah. bit more yeah there's a part of the world that has given up on about the earth mm. and they're like okay this is a dying world it's it's not sustainable and we need to get out yeah. the way to get out is go elsewhere to space yeah, yeah. so there's there's that whole thinking and 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 again they're just thinking the same terms that colonialists thought it's um, you know as you were talking it's so amazing how i think about this a lot how movies paint the picture of what we are going to like it's almost like it's like it's almost it's almost like we're constantly being prepared for the world that we are you know because when you talked about it, i was just thinking how many shows have i watched where the world was dying because of you know because of you know climate climate change and then a particular group of people it's always a particular group mm-hmm. of people <laughs> that are picked and then taken to a different world and then they're expected to repopulate yeah. that place with but then the ideals are the same like the same thing that got you that made your old world die those that same mentality is what brings you to yeah. this new world yeah. and then 3000 years later this world is dying so then you keep doing that and mm-hmm. then in a, after after a certain period of time the entire universe or whatever ecosystem is destroyed because human beings just won't learn that you can't you you can't what's the, what's the word you can't fix you can't fix 
is it old pro- you can't fix new pro- no there's a thing like you can't fix problems with your old way of thinking ways, exactly you know yeah i was trying to figure there's a mm-hmm. phrase i'm looking for I'll probably remember it at midnight and it will bug <laughs> me you know no but it's totally true i mean if you look at colonization and what uh, europe did to africa it was more of and why i was talking with a pakistani friend of mine at a conference like oh kenya you're really famous for the tea and then i was so and we started laughing about it and they asked him okay so uh the colonialists made us a tea plantation what did mm. they do to you and i was like oh they used to get spices from us mm. uh, and so it was more of these people to, took africa's okay we'll get minerals here uh, this case will produce um, tea will produce what and there will be a settler community where we're going exactly. to live forever so it was very extractive yeah it was never oh you know there's there's a group of human beings who live here and it was, it was subjects like, yeah we'll just take this from them use them for these and I, i think we're having the same mentality about the world like one of the things that saddened me a lot last year was you know the whole amazon forest thing mm. and this the indigenous communities have been living there a lot of them like very women led and so that this case in court which they won against the government to extend protection for the amazon forest yeah and the president's friends business friends start burning the forest so much so that the amazon which is like one of the places in the world that takes a lot of carbon from the yeah atmosphere when you talk about carbon sequestration yeah. amazon <laughs> yeah so the forest fires were so bad that now the amazon became one of the worst emitters mm. just in a period of one year and i think right now the protests are still going on and it was so weird to see a government do such things so bolsonaro even tried to change the the judges in the supreme court mm. because they they figured okay that judge is not friendly to my goals so we're going to get a new judge and even during covid these indigenous communities were camped in brasilia and rio like trying to protest you know yeah. like i think i i watched that mm. too i watched the documentary and then to i have a friend from brazil so she was constantly fuming about it yeah, yeah. and it's it's that attitude that i i think you know for equality for the world to exist for sustainability i, I think people just need to start seeing the full sack of things the one we are all human beings so you can't say someone else is lesser because of religion color or gender or sex and any system that ascribes to that like we we need to start is, is finding a new system yeah. yeah and any system that says we can just exploit the world because like e- economics drives how we treat our world mm. and and yeah so sis for for a sustainable world for sustainable futures for equality we need to change systems we, we need to abolish bad systems mm. and people is like oh no you know that should take like 40 years or 50 years But the thing is when you keep saying it needs to move a few more years we're not ever going to do it mm. it's always going to be and so that's one challenge people like postponing and trying to find uh is it stop gap measures but the other part is like regular people being so caught up in you know the day to day living you know pay rent get food so much so when when these issues happen people do not connect it to a bigger thing so for example uh 
a few weeks when we mentioned those those the woman was uh, attacked by border yeah. riders on on forest road on Karimadai road yeah and and people arguing about it my feminist friends wanted to go march but like you know we yeah we would march but we weren't like looking at the root issues mm. the root issues one uh, Kenya's economy is is a system of economic violence mm. like is a whole way of extracting and underpaying people and even the way people behave on the roads is this whole like pressure mm-hmm. there is tension people are antagonistic they like you in my way and if we look at it and say our, our economy is violent so an economy a violent economy will breed violent border riders transport system yeah. i was i was going to say as you're saying I don't know. I always say this and I I'm not going to say that I'm the one who thought of it, but it's some someone said it and it stuck with me that if you want to know the personality of a country, you look at the transport system. It tells you everything yeah. everything you need to know about that country, mm-hmm. transport system. Carry on. <laughs> yeah, so exactly. So on the roads you can actually feel the 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 thing, the whole tension and the antagonism and that's because we've built we've built a very violent economy i remember in 2018 when i was like really jobless and very reflective yeah. <laughs> i wrote a bunch of articles you know saying how our economy could be kinder to people so that if someone lost a job it doesn't mean they die <sighs> and then and then covid happened and we realized that we are on our own <laughs> <laughs> exactly Ooh. so so there's all that stuff and i mean so one half of it was yeah this economy economy is a very violent economy the second half was you know it's it was gender based and sexual violence because and uh, people like saying oh it's african culture but it's not mm. this whole thing of seeing women as lesser beings is victorian patriarchy mm. Mm. it was never african culture mm. people like oh you know women always spend time in the kitchen but the victorian kitchen and the african kitchen two mm. different not things. the same yeah african kitchen was always in the middle of the the village the old matriarch would always hold like a place of power there mm-hmm. so if people came from the aunt or the harvest the food was brought there and should share it out mm-hmm. you know take this to the young man take this to this so it was a position of like resource distribution to like a parliament or so yeah but the victorian kitchen is a place of relegation you go cook uh serve your man so that he can go back to work and just making you invisible yeah yeah and and so people would be like oh no african culture be like no If you're talking about African culture, let's talk about two African type African cultures. There's African culture pre-colonialism mm-hmm. and then there's the modified African culture post-colonialism. So anytime people raise the point of oh it's a culture be like no, it's not. This is Victorian patriarchy, this whole you know centering quote and quote men, so androcentrism, mm. uh quote centering a specific type of relationship. a relationship between men and women mm. just it wasn't always african i mean kikuyu women married each other kamba nandi like there's a list and not just in kenya there's, there's a whole list of different communities all of africa and so when a judge sits in court and says are you against african culture you're western i'm like you know we just got the whole map wrong <laughs> <laughs> the law you're defending is a 1930 law written by the british And when they went home in 1967 and they're done giving everyone independence they abolished it in their country. 
So <laughs> yeah, <it's> such <laughs> such weird uh, perspective. Sometimes you see it and you just laugh. Other times you're frustrated, and but I mean, then you have to start keep speaking and you know talk to people about things. The one of the things I don't talk about nowadays, like Kenyan politics, because for me it's a comedy. Mm. Like anything I saw in 1992 is being done in 2022 and by the exactly same people. So I just laugh about it. I'm like, not interested. Yeah. Like even if I don't watch news, I can tell you exactly what will happen. What will happen. You can predict mm-hmm. the future like the weather. Okay. <laughs> We've talked for more than an hour. Oh, wow. Imagine. Um, final thoughts. Uh I, I don't know, I, just the same thing. I, I think the world just needs to be more humane. Mm. We really need to talk about things. I I, I know there's there someone in the feminist movement who was asking me about cancel culture. And I told her, you know, cancel culture denies people the, the chance to talk. Better talk and I agree. We agree that you're obtuse and don't want to listen to a different opinion rather than me canceling you because that makes me the obtuse one. Mm. And yeah, people need to have conversations about life, about about what it means to be human beings in the 21st century, about what it means to be African in this century. Because I, I don't always feel like we could like not necessarily get back whatever cultures we had, uh-huh. but, you know, potential to build what a new culture like this. What being an African means in in this century. Uh-huh. Yeah. Those are like my final thoughts. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and speak to me. I hope this has been an awesome conversation because you've said so many things. I feel like I'm going to listen to this episode and then think and then think and think, you know, right? Like, totally. Yeah. Well, I hope I wasn't ranting. Sometimes when I talk about things, I feel like ah, this is a rant. <laughs> no, it was it was worth it. I mean, if people don't pick anything else, they'll pick carbon sequestration. Oh, yes, that one. Yeah. Definitely. Then they can they can go and Google. <laughs> so thank you so much. And it's thank a wrap, guys. Thank you for having me. Yeah. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>